Alrighty, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, na'amaduhu wa nasalli ala rasulihil kareem, amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala, and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So, continuing our exploration of Surah An-Nisa, if I forget to tell you all, no class tomorrow. I'll try to remind you at the end of the, the session. So class today, no class tomorrow, and then class again will be meeting on Monday, inshallah. Yes, I So we've been looking at, uh, where'd it go? Uh, we've been looking at this ayah from Surah 4. Can you all see the ayahs on your screen? Yeah, okay, very good. Excellent. And so <clears throat> we looked at Ayah 5, do not entrust your property to the feeble-minded. God has made a meat of support for you, make a provision for them, and clothe them and address them kindly. And there also we spoke about the underlying construction of society that we see. We have mothers and family, extended family. We have wives on the other hand, or on the one hand, and then orphans, orphan girls, and the feeble. And we sort of made this point about the feeble before, that even weaker than orphan girls would be those that are of the, uh, among the orphans who might have some sort of lacking ability, either uh, especially cognitively um, or maybe they're deaf, maybe they're blind, so forth and so on. The marginalized of the marginalized or the weak, the weakest in society will be the orphans and the weaker of the orphans will be the orphan girls and the weakest will be the, the feeble um, or the feeble-minded here. And then we have this recurring theme about, about wealth. So this brings us now to Ayah 6. Okay, Wabtalu. So translations here is test, give trial of the orphans until they have reached the marriageable age. If you find they have sound judgment, hand over their property to them. Do not consume it hastily before they become of age. If the guardian is well off, he should abstain from the orphan's property. If he is poor, he should use only what is fair. When you give them their property, call witnesses in, but God takes full account of everything you do. So we're still speaking about how to conduct life with orphans, how to raise orphans. And so from this first part, what are we basically being told? Take on the role of being a parent to an orphan. So the first mentions of orphans were what? Uh, protect and preserve their property. And then the second was in the context of marriage being fair. But now, with an orphan, take on the role of being a parent. Okay. It doesn't necessarily mean being a foster parent, being an adoptive parent. But take on that role of molding them. Boom. So again, if they don't, have their own parents who can do it for them. Life is going to force them to grow a little bit. But the advice here with orphans is to take on the role of being parents for them. 
And again, as I mentioned a couple of classes ago, you know, uh, people like conspiracy theories. I like conspiracy theories more just because they're fun and juicy, but I like making divine conspiracy theories. And some of you have heard from me that perhaps, and Allah knows best, one of the reasons why Allah has not destroyed America for all the destruction we do of the world is because you have this giant population of people that it still adopts children or takes them in as foster foster children. Aside from those people that are doing it to cash in, I'm talking about people who do it genuinely because their religious beliefs, especially in Christianity, that they're said to do so. This is a point to think about again in terms of our community, uh, the difficulty of finding people that'll put time out for children. If it's not in the context of adopting, then less than that would be a foster parent, but then less than that would be putting in time, you know, on somewhat of a regular basis with children that are orphans. This is what we are being prescribed here to do so for them until they become marriageable age. Yeah. Form them, form them, especially for the relationships of marriage. Yeah. Uh, speaking of foster parents, I have a professor who has 12 children, six are adopted. Wow, mashallah. That's uh, that's uh, very, very impressive. It's impressive, but she never has time for us as students. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, this is what holds many of us back. What holds many of us back is either the feeling that we don't have enough money or the feeling we don't have enough time. If that is a genuine concern, that's one thing. But if we have time to watch football every week, then you have time, you know. So, I mean, one one football Sunday is literally four hours plus, which could be used, literally used on a weekly basis to mentor uh, little kids or growing kids. Now, <clears throat> this is also uh, in terms of the context of what to do with the wealth of an orphan. If the orphan that is under your care has some amount of wealth, the previous ayah says, don't mess around with it. And here you're steadily testing them as they grow on their level of maturity. When they finally have what you deem to be maturity, then give them their wealth. Part of maturity we, uh, we address in the other class. So when someone is officially deemed to be responsible, we didn't do it in this class yesterday, right? We did in the other class, yeah. The term being mukallaf is essentially they have the marks of puberty. The common one being that, you know, they have hair growing, coarse hair growing, in the places that hair grows, like your armpits and stuff, you know, with with uh, with puberty, and then they have intellect. Aqal in this context means that you can uh, evaluate what is healthy or harmful, and you have the capable of choosing it. So imagine a little child, a little a little, little child might not even be able to tell what's good or bad for them. And then a slightly older child can tell what's right or wrong, but they can't keep themselves from that thing that's bad for them. So aql becomes aql, intellect becomes intellect. 
when you can distinguish right from wrong and you have the capability of choosing. If you don't have this, then you are technically not considered to be responsible. So imagine someone who is not of sound mind might live a full length of life and yet is not responsible for any of their choices in this dunya because they didn't have the capacity to choose. This is also, hey, lawyers. Do we have any lawyers here? We have a bunch of lawyers in the making, mashallah. Um, what is the definition of temporary insanity? Like when that's used as a defense, isn't it that in the moment you couldn't distinguish between right and wrong, right? Um, well, first of all, are there any real lawyers in the chat? Yeah, Nadia is a real lawyer and she can. She should answer. Yeah. Okay, she answered for us. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for your attempt, Mr. 1L, mashallah. Okay, but mashallah, all right. Speaking of 1L, where's where's your partner? You know, our, 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 our ray of light is not here. Okay, unfortunately, his, his wife, Noor. Anyway. And again, the same joke I always like telling when I when I um, um, give this specific micro lesson. So, with responsibility, uh, Arabs, what is the word for responsibility? Olfatina. I asked your brother; he was the Arab expert, Arabic expert in the other class. So, responsibility is taklif in the legal sense. Desis, what does taklif mean in Urdu? Zishan? Pain. What? Pain. Means pain. Like, pain. You mean the reverse? What does it mean in English? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. For from Urdu, what is taklif? Yeah, pain. And so this is this gives you a hint of you know the Urdu philosophy. You know when words get imported from Arabic, responsibility for us is pain. Anyway, so I don't know how that developed over over uh, the years. Usually you can figure it out. So the point we're saying here is in the context of orphans, you're figuring out if they have what's called your sound judgment, uh, when to give their wealth back to them, when to entrust themselves with their wealth. So, and then do not use it, do not waste it before they have reached that point. If you have sufficient wealth, you should not use any of their wealth. If you are poor, then only partake of their wealth, that which is fair to feed them, to clothe them, so forth and so on. Okay. When you hand over their wealth, then also you should bring witnesses. Okay. Knowing that Allah is sufficient, you know, as in terms of taking account of everything. At one level, I don't know if this ayah applies to any of us in this room. But the point to especially consider for, for many of us is the first part which is essentially for orphans, figure out a way to take on a role that is like parenting. To take on a role to help them grow in their maturity. And so I always give this example that, you know, for the past year and a half, we had in Chicago all of these Afghan refugee kids. And it was a very difficult time finding other people who were willing to put in the time for them. You know, And they sat in detention centers and literally moved around detention centers all across the country. And the only reason I did it is literally because somebody forced me into it. I was trying to run away from it. And I decided I can't say no to orphans. You know? So I'm not even claiming to be anything more noble than anybody else. All right. Okay. Now we get into some fun stuff. Inheritance. 
I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, mentioned uh, marriageable age instead of just saying age of completion. So essentially, Balar is, is this age of maturity. And at that point, you're essentially marriageable age. Okay. So if you're Balera, uh, what that means is officially you are Mokalaf, you are responsible. What that is also effectively saying is you might not be ready for marriage. Okay. In our contemporary culture, that would still probably be too young. Now we've separated the age of maturity from the age of marriageability, perhaps by even a decade. So, make sense? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions about that, Aya? So now we're going to get into some things that at first is going to seem kind of technical, but we will go through it piece by piece, inshallah, and also look for what else is present in these ayahs. Ayah 7. Men shall have a share in what their parents and closest relatives leave, and women shall have a share in what their parents and closest relatives leave. <laughs> Whether this is uh, this the legacy be large or small, this is ordained by Allah. Some of you are jumping ahead and thinking, okay, well, the man's share and in inheritance is so much bigger than the woman's share. That we'll get to if we get to it. But what is taking place in this ayah? This is something that is radical for their time, isn't it? That in the generation of the prophet, peace be upon him, Leading up to his arrival, women were property. Women had no agency or autonomy. And so repeatedly in this surah already, women have agency. And here women have the privilege or the right of inheritance. Okay. This is that thing where then you always have that random person who says, in America, women got the right to inherit only 100 years ago. But in Islam, women have had the right to inherit for 1,400 years, right? You always have that person who's going to say those things. In America, women had the right to own property only 100 years ago or the right to vote only 50 years ago, 70 years ago. But in Islam, they've had these rights for 1,400 years. Okay, that's really good. But uh, what is actually disappointing is how frequently you will find brothers pushing out their sisters from inheritance. This is a very huge issue in the subcontinent. This is a very huge issue in many parts of the Arab world, that it is divine law that the son and the daughter inherit. Okay, Literally, this is ordained by God, and yet people will skirt around it. So what else we have here is the transfer of wealth. Look at all the different roles that wealth is taking. Again, people, nerds like me, like the theory stuff here. So we have parents and we have uh, mothers and we have uh, uh, family in this ayah. And then we have the wealth of an orphan. And then we have marriage. And then we have the marriage gift, something that the husband does with his wealth. And then we have the wealth of an or, uh, the wealth that is given to people, the wealth of an orphan, and then now the wealth that is being handed off. This is repeated so much that finance laws are a big thing in the dean. Most of us often only think of 
interest and inheritance but finance laws are one of the biggest fields of of islamic law just about as big as almost everything else laws of commerce laws of investment so forth and so on any questions about this ayah this ayah is very very simple and straightforward for our purposes it's giving agency to to women which is new at that time if other relatives orphans or needy people are present at the distribution give them something to and speak kindly to them okay <clears throat> giving you the sneak preview of a little bit of inheritance and we might reach these ayahs soon what is how does it play out two-thirds of your inheritance are already pre-written in terms of whom is to receive it one-third of your inheritance goes to whomever you want so you can give a third of it your inheritance to an institution you can give a third of your inheritance to the needy wherever it is you want to send it that's where you can send a third of your inheritance so this in the general sense here is saying all right if i'm responsible responsible for distributing my parents wealth and relatives are there orphans are there the needy are there i should give some of the wealth to them and the bare minimum but here on top of it is i should speak kindly to everyone this is a theme you see over and over again Olan marufan dania can you clarify the so you're, when you say your inheritance are you talking about like the person who's inheriting from whoever the deceased is and then can you clarify the one-third can go to an institution and two-third is for you part okay um and then okay. i have a, another question i'm sorry about <laughs> about the the masakin um yeah. the masakin. does that mean like in their literal vicinity that they can see or in their like community that's a wonderful question so the second one in the context of the ayah it seems to be speaking of in the time of distribution right so distribution in our society is going to happen probably in a law office right or in some other sense like that but in many other cultures in the past it's a semi-public experience and so it's probably speaking of that so if we were to apply this to us in the modern west it would probably speak of your vicinity make sense for question two Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah. Question one. Uh, so essentially, uh, we have an obligation to write up a will. And two thirds of the wealth that I'm leaving is already prescribed to whom it is to go to. And you'll find a lot of it later on in the Sura. Uh, yeah, so we will probably get to this by the end of the week, inshallah. Uh, maybe even earlier uh, it's this big algebraic structure and i wonder if algebra came more from this um, or was developed more because of inheritance laws than other theories that people have regarding astronomy and such so so how that gets divided up is already prescribed for two-thirds you know if you have if you have uh, a wife this much goes to her if you have one son two daughters whatever the variations are um but a third however i can do whatever i want with it to give is to that whoever. when you're alive 
or so, is that like I write in my will and then when oh. I die a third of that I can give away so this is what I write in my will gotcha to whom okay. it goes to if it uh happens that I don't write a will and I'm in some sort of Muslim context then the Muslims who are handing handling my estate would divvy up the two-thirds according to Islamic law and that one-third would then be their discretion gotcha I I hear of a lot of um discrepancy um in in that specific part so thank you for clarifying Safan uh hi so who is the I had direction in the sense of who's like prescribed as the uh, executor of the estate so who's prescribed as the executor you're asking because um you have the uh will which is sort of set up presumably and you have this command to distribute things to people who are at the distribution so presumably the executor has to balance those things so whose responsibility is that so that would be the responsibility of the executor which is um i'm actually looking at this this other law book right now because i don't um let me come back to you on who is prescribed um, to me. Us, um, is that for, just because I do wills as Oh, you're probably the master. Yeah, go for it. You can pick anyone you want as the executor. Okay. Is there nobody that's commonly prescribed to be it? If usually people not? pick their spouses. Um, just anyone that's trustworthy. Yeah, perfect. And responsible. Those no. are probably qualities that are. Yeah, excellent. Um Good. And then, uh, Safan, do you have a follow-up question? No, uh, but comment. This actually is the origin of algebra. This is the origin of algebra, the inheritance That's my laws? Okay. That's, uh, I, uh, this is what I've heard. This is what I believe it to be more. Some people, I believe, have argued that it's more related to astronomy and moon sighting type things or figuring out direction of the prayer. But, but yeah. Hamid. Uh, so if I'm understanding correctly, when in your will two-thirds of it is already allocated and one-third you could do what you want with it what's the wisdom in kind of the the ease of let's say someone is on their deathbed and they can just gift everything however they want that's uh almost recommended i mean that you give all your wealth away while you're still alive Mm. do you think that's why it's structured this way to kind of almost incentivize people to spend their entire money the way they want, or not necessarily spend, but give. Uh, I think uh, I would suggest, okay, so there's a very famous hadith that is that is taught in the context of all this, the hadith of Saad ibn Abi Waqas. And it's taught for different uh, reasons. One is just the content, but one is also the different narrations of the same moment itself. Uh, but the principle of the content is that you should not leave your family poor if you can help it right and so the structure of the inheritance laws as we will see is speaking of a context in which men are the workers are the providers and so then the inheritance is primarily going to them right um, uh, but if i decide i want to do something different um, let's say i have you know a son and two daughters and I want them to all have the equal amounts that I can do while I'm alive. Um, and that would be a gift I'm giving to my kids. Or let's say I hate one kid. You know, the kid's just a brat. 
then I can leave that person, you know, like a bottle of Ruabza and then, you know, give all my wealth to someone else. Yeah. Sorry, so, Ramadan. So, so in the example of, uh, you know, someone has uh, a son and two daughters and they can give it however they want, they can give it equally while they're alive. If they were to die, but in their will, they stipulated that they all get equally, would that be sinful? Yes. Mm. Yeah. But then would the kids still have the right to take the money? Or this how would... Uh, so this would come down to what is the Islamic levelness of the executor. Hey, Nadia, what do you think? They legally would be entitled to the money in the U.S. If it was US put, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, should they keep, I mean, they could redistribute it amongst themselves if they wanted to once it hits their hands. Yeah. If they felt like their parent maybe made a decision that wasn't, the best because that's between them once they get the money yeah mm. and not to go too into the details but let's say then uh, the kids you know they figured it out they made it should not compliant would the parent still be sinful because uh, that uh i don't know that's you <laughs> yeah. yeah that uh uh it could be that they have prevented their parent from from being sinful yeah. that would be the positive read of it the Rahma read. Sadia. So what if a woman dies and has no kids or um, no husband and she has inheritance? Who does it go to? So, so that concept is called Kalala. And that is explored in the very last ayah. So people ask you uh, a pronounced pronounced a ruling considering inheritance for those who have left behind no linear heirs. And so then that's all basically like laid out here. A lot of it essentially goes to siblings and such if siblings are possible. Yeah. So. Other questions related to this. The more technical questions you have, I'm going to have to go uh, defer to others, whether it's Nadia or or Islamic scholars or what have you, but no other questions so far? Let us go to Ayah 8 or Ayah 9. Oh, no, so back to, to, to uh, Ayah 8. Hey, oh, yeah, I had another uh, a question also. Maybe Nadia can answer this. How does um, creating an estate factor into this? Like nowadays people are doing, and we're, we haven't done our will or estate yet, but I'm understanding that it's time to do that. Um, if you're talking about a trust, that type of an estate, you do that while you're alive. So you can, that counts as giving it away. So technically, if you want it to be unequal, you don't have to follow um, the prescribed verses. That only kicks in after you pass away. Yeah. So sometimes, sometimes people create a trust and there's like a difference of opinion on whether that's trying to get around it or not. But usually if it's a irrevocable trust, um, it counts as you gave that away while you were alive. That is my understanding. Hmm. Follow up question? That's so complex. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So again, another repeated point you will find through all this is in terms of the powerless, what is going on here in this surah is essentially prescriptions on how to address matters where people are easily abused. 
So that's been the theme almost from the beginning of the surah, at least from the second ayah. And the bare, bare, bare minimum of what you owe to the powerless is kindness. Societally, you might owe more, but speak to people kindly. And I think we all get it. It's very easy for me to speak with force um, to somebody who has less power than me. Let's say I'm at a restaurant and I decide to be a jerk to the waiter. Um, and it's very easy for me to speak in kindness to someone who has more power or has the ability to give me something. And the prescription is to speak kindly to the weakest of society, but also we have obligations regarding greater treatment of them. So let those who fear for the future of their own children, if they were to die, to show the same concern, and here, the same concern for orphans, let them have, uh, uh, yeah, so let them have taqwa, and speak out for justice. So more than kindness, I should look to orphans akin to the same compassion and concern I have for my own children. So those of you in this class is probably about uh, a third of you who have children. And then, mashallah, you know, a few of you, inshallah, will be having children in the next month or so. Uh, consider the level of love you have for your child, where you will do anything for your child, except for those moments where you might want to beat them. But aside from that, you will do anything for your child. That is a level of concern you should have for your orphans, yeah. or the orphans of your community. Yeah. And so, higher than giving them kindness, higher than giving them of our wealth is is essentially to be um, so basically it's more, here's some of it's being translated justice and such, but to be speaking very clearly for them, advocating for them. So, so again, keep considering this in terms of the orphans in your community. The fascinating thing about American society is that orphans are often very hidden. You don't commonly come across orphans. You can get into the foster care system and discover some things, but orphans are very well hidden in, in uh, uh, American society. In contrast to many of our back home societies where orphans are all over the place. Hamid. Are there any organizations that you would recommend we support in terms of fulfilling this obligation to support orphans? Um, I don't really have one. Uh, other people are welcome to chime Please do chime in. Uh, there's a secular organization co-run by a number of Jews at this temple in Oak Park. So there's the Oak Park Temple. And some of the attendees there uh, run a secular organization that's for foster care. And and they are periodically always looking for foster parents and such. Um, so that would be one. Uh, I'm forgetting the name at the moment. It starts with an H, but I can look that up very quickly if anyone is uh, interested. Uh, but if anyone else has any to recommend, Lutheran Family Services is a big, big organization that helps a lot of Muslim refugees um, coming from various countries overseas. Um, about a year and a half ago, uh, I did I conducted a, a wedding um, 
in which the groom, and I forgot which country he's from, I want to say he was from Kenya, but he came as a refugee, taken care of by Lutheran Family Services. And I mean, he was, is Muslim. And so that's a very, very active organization. Well, does anyone else have any uh, foster or adoptive organizations out here that you would recommend? In terms of Muslim organizations, at least in America, we don't have very much of an infrastructure right now, right? And part of the reason we don't have very much of an infrastructure is we don't have too many people coming forward. And this is not a criticism of anybody individually. All of us have things going on. You know, I'm almost never home. And, and so the best that I could do is to talk to kids in detention centers and such, you know. But I would suggest, you know, if you have time to give on a regular basis for leisure, see if some of that can go to orphans or refugees, because there are probably many in detention centers. I mean, to really, really make this point, why I got pulled in, in fact, by Safan's mom with these Afghan kids, in part was because I already had a, ref a, a relationship with these detention centers. Some of you already heard this rant from me, but I used to go and lead Eid prayers at these detention centers in Chicago, and it would be a room full of Muslim kids, most of whom don't speak English, but were survivors of sex trafficking. And so this is a room full of kids from Bangladesh, from Pakistan, from the Ivory Coast, from Jordan, every place uh, who were pulled into these global sex trafficking rings that they made their way to Chicago you know, from, let's say, some village back home, kidnapped, maybe sold by their parents, but usually kidnapped, pulled into these rings, and then are trafficked all across the world, including Chicago and the underground in Chicago. And so imagine a room full of 100 kids at Eid uh, in ages uh, 6 to 8 up to 14, 15. And in a room full of 100 kids, 90 would be boys. And that's what's going on in the darknesses of, of our society. And I would have very specific rules. I cannot tell, I couldn't tell you where the detention center is for the safety of the kids. I wouldn't be able to ask their names. I wouldn't be able to hug them like we hug for Eid. And most I could do like a fist pump, you know. And then I remember one time giving a chutbah. I don't even know if the kids, how many of them could understand what I was saying, even though we had translators. And this is one kid who's like eight years old, who's crying so much. Um, I don't think it's because of what I said, but just because of where he was, uh, that the top half of his shirt got drenched from tears, literally the top half of his shirt. And the scary thing is that this is all, all around us behind the scenes, behind the facade of, of modern urban life. Rossi. Hey, uh, it's a hunt. Um, uh -huh. That was very uh, moving, um, uh, uh, subhanAllah. I just raised my hand because uh, from what I've heard, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, maybe Ronald McDonald House mm. has some resources as well if people want to check that out. Yeah, that's uh, a good suggestion. Yeah. I've heard criticism of Ronald McDonald House, but I've also heard far more good things about them. So. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, I don't know the specifics, but... Uh, yeah. I know they they deal uh, with orphans. So, sure. yeah. thank you for that, Hamid. 
Uh, you said those kids were being held in a detention center. Was, were they accused of a crime or was no, that no. a funny place that could hold them? So basically what happens is that they escape from, from the sex traffickers and somebody finds them and then directs them and, and gets them connected to some authorities that then get them connected to nonprofits. And so the detention centers are run by nonprofits. The quality of the detention centers sometimes are their own problem. Right. And then what the nonprofits do is that they track down their parents and figure out a way to get the kids back home. So these are the same detention centers when you have people migrating or refugees from the south, from Guatemala, from Mexico and such coming here. They'll make their way all throughout the country, depending upon, you know, the the pathways that they have. And there's already a system in place in figuring out how to connect them to local family or family back home and to get them back to safety. So, all righty, but as detention centers, they're literally detention centers where every door is locked and they're all dressing in basic sweats, eating beans and rice, very, very basic food for, for, for meals and such. So, and like I said, uh, I'm leaving Eid and it's a room full of Muslim kids. And that's just the Muslim kids. There's kids of every, every ethnicity, you know, that, that are pulled in. Okay. On these heavy notes, uh, the the la this last point being, think of the love you have for your child. If you don't have a child, think of the love you have for a younger sibling or the imagined love you have for a child and try to have that for the orphans as well. Uh, and have taqwa. And then speak out in, in support and defense of, of these kids. Okay, uh, so let us stop right here, inshallah. We'll continue with Ayah 10, and then from there we'll get into this big inheritance Ayah, which I will try to answer, but most often it'll be, you know, math formulas that'll, that'll give the answer. So maybe I'll, I'll, get, I'll have Safan on standby to, to plug in numbers to find answers if people have questions. Rossi or Ahant? Assalamualaikum. Um, I just I was wondering if, do you know if the kids can be postured like while they are waiting to be connected back to their parents back home? Uh, very often, yes. The, the challenge is that someone has to go through the whole foster care process. And then, you know, once you're approved for that, then it can be evaluated. So for example, uh, you can't pick which child in a detention center you want. You can, but the persons who's responsible for matching can try to match what works best with these parents and their situation. And, such and such child, but you have to go through your own process of getting approved and such. With the Afghani kids, it was a, an additional level because they were regarded as a matter of state security. You had to have FBI background clearance too, which is kind of goofy. We had to have DCFS clearance, Department of Children and Family Services. And then on top of that, we also had to have FBI clearance because the kids were literally regarded as a matter of state security. So, and they're 10 years old, 15 years old. Sadia. Do the kids really ever get reconnected to their families? And if they can't, then where do they end up? The Afghani kids, no. Because uh, in most cases, their parents put them on the planes to come here, if they had parents. I had one case where uh, the girl's father, I think, had already passed away. The girl herself was like 14. And when the Taliban took over, they were celebrating so much they were shooting their ak-47s into the sky 
and one of them accidentally killed her sister and then her mother died of a heart attack shortly after that this is how horrendous their lives are i mean the stories are just beyond shocking yesterday i mean this is this is slightly off topic but to speak about afghanistan yesterday um i was meeting with a grad student who's from afghanistan and so he's probably in his upper 20s he landed in america on a fulbright two weeks before the government handover happened and i asked him about his life and he's hazara so hazara are a shia tribe in afghanistan that have even less rights and power and the things he was sharing about what he's witnessed you know from childhood on uh they're too graphic for me to mention here you know but basically uh he was giving me examples about how how these lives are treated less than the lives of dogs so. and how about the non-afghanis like uh, so same thing uh, so the non-afghanis if they're coming here as migrants yes there are some where they can't find their families you know and then they get put into the soft the they stay in detention centers and they get escalated to higher level detention centers until they're 18 and then they get put into what we would be the equivalent of a halfway house or a group home and then given minimal training and then then they're thrown into american life mm. so. and the plight of orphans in america is better than in most countries of the world right and we said that orphans in most countries of the world you will wind up in a sweatshop and or in prostitution so all righty so once again um uh, i don't want to make everybody depressed with all this speaking about the realities of this world the surah is very much uh, about orphans in this beginning part um but at the very least in whatever capacity please make your prayers for all of those who are marginalized and and ignored uh, in society as you pray for all the rest of us inshallah subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashhadu la ilaha illa anta May Allah tell you all. And no class tomorrow. We will reconvene on Wednesday, inshallah. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Hi, thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah.